June 28th of last year, early in the morning, uh, I was asleep and, and a man visited me in my dream. This man was one of the most handsome men I've ever seen in my life. He was very strong. He was muscular and his face was really cut. He was Hispanic. He was tall. It was very tall, like maybe seven or eight feet tall. And I don't know how he was dressed because that didn't matter. What mattered was his attitude. He was the most confident person I have ever seen in my life. There was absolutely no fear, no doubt, no second guessing, no self-consciousness, no arrogance about him at all. But that man could have fought all of hell put together. I mean, he was absolutely the most confident person I have ever seen. I could not have imagined on purpose a person this strong. He appeared in front of me and he looked at me with super intense eyes and he put his finger up in my face and he said, Jesus approves of you some. I cannot tell you (laughs) how intense he was. He was on a mission. He had a purpose and he was there to do it and nothing was going to stop him. That's what he told me. And I can't tell you either how encouraging that was to know that Jesus approved of me, but it was also a rebuke because the addition of the word some was just perfect. I've, I've mentioned this before, but uh, you know, if he had said, oh, Jesus loves you and he's your biggest fan and he's great, he thinks you're great, and that would have been my own spiritual arrogance showing up. Um, if he had shown up and said, you're a failure and a loser and Jesus can hardly stand you, then I would also have known that that wasn't true. But just the fact that he said Jesus loves you or Jesus approves of you some um, was very encouraging, like, yes, I'm doing something right. And it made me want to run forward in life with the intensity that he had. And then all of a sudden he had a bullwhip in his hand, like Indiana Jones bullwhip, and he whipped me in the face. That's what he did. He he appears in my dream. He says, Jesus approves of you some. And then he cracks this bullwhip and and whips me in the face. I don't know where the bullwhip came from. I don't know if he had been wearing it on his side or if if it just appeared in his hand. I really don't know. But when he cracks that whip and it begins to unfurl toward my face, everything went into super, super, super slow motion like in a movie where you can see the bullets flying through the air, you know. And I can see this end of this whip unfurling toward my face. I can see that the end of the whip has something like a Sharpie on it, a a marker, a black marker. And his touch was so perfect, it just went, and he marked my forehead with his whip, and he disappeared. And I don't know if I immediately woke up or or if the... uh, uh, if the dream went on somewhere else or, or what, I have no idea. I woke up, I'm convinced it was an angel. It's the only time in my life that I have been aware that I was addressed or uh, had an episode with, with an angel. And you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. You really, truly don't. I know people make wild claims of things that they have seen in visions or heard from God and and people are seeing angels every other day and stuff like that. And, and, and I don't believe a lot of what I hear either. You do, you do not have to believe me. You really don't. But I'm convinced that, I, that it was an angel that appeared to me in my dream. And it's scriptural what he did to me. There's an episode in Ezekiel that is similar to him 
marking my forehead. And here's from Ezekiel chapter 9. This is Ezekiel seeing this in a spiritual vision while he's in the temple in Jerusalem. He, call, he is God. He called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let each of those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. I love that. Angels with battle axes? Doesn't get any cooler than that. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. So the inkhorn is, is a bottle that the ink was in. All right, they kept them in a horn in those days, but later it was glass bottles that you've seen the quill and that they used to write with. And he, mar- he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side, and the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others he said, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. And then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. And so it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and I cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? And he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord does not see, so my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will repay their deeds on their own head. And just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. So Ezekiel sees these angels, um, but they're appearing as men. Five of them have battle axes and one of them has a, a pen. And God says, go and mark the people who are righteous, who sigh and cry over the sins of Jerusalem. And then you other five, you go out and kill everybody else. And it's a prophecy of what's coming when Nebuchadnezzar's army comes, and they literally did that. They killed men and women and children and babies and everybody. But God spared the righteous remnant. There's also a passage in Revelation about marking our foreheads. Revelation 7. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I've said it before, you've heard me say this, but people get so obsessed with the mark of the beast. What is 666 and what if I take it on my forehead? I would be much more concerned that Jesus has marked my forehead than the devil does it. Hello? All right, getting obsessed with what not to do is the wrong vision. It's the wrong motivation. It's, it's backward thinking. Let's, let's uh, ask Jesus to mark your forehead. Angel visitations in the Bible are actually quite common. Zacharias is visited by an angel when his wife is going to get pregnant with John. Mary and Joseph are both visited, uh, Mary in person and Joseph in a dream, but by the same angel. It's Gabriel. It's a different type of experience, but it's the same angel. The shepherds, uh, the night of Jesus' birth, Jesus after his temptation was visited by angels. Jesus in the garden, the night before he was crucified, was visited by angels. There's angels at the tomb after the resurrection. In Acts 5, there are angels that physically appear in the jail cell and break Peter and John out of jail. Then an angel appears to Philip in a dream and tells him to go out in the desert where he's going to meet the Ethiopian. And they ride in the chariot and the Ethiopian eunuch is uh, baptized. 
Um, an angel visits Cornelius and tells him to invite Peter to his house. And this is where the first Gentiles get saved and where Peter has his vision of the animals being lowered on a sheet and so on. It's an angel that initiated all of that. In Acts 12, it's an angel that kills King Herod. Uh, in Acts 12 also, an angel physically materializes in Peter's jail cell and breaks him out of jail again a second time. This is the time where Peter's knocking on the door and the girl screams and runs off and leaves him there. <laughs> Tell, they're, they're having a prayer meeting for Peter to get out of jail and Peter shows up at the door and they don't believe it. We're no different. Paul is, uh, in, in the book of Acts, Paul's on a ship and there's a terrible storm and he, this the story where he goes and tells the captain, we're not going to sink. What he says is, an angel stood by me all night and he told me, we're not going to sink. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's even more. Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael, and Lot, and Jacob, and Moses, and Balaam, and his donkey, and Joshua, and Samson's parents, and Gideon, and David, and Elijah, and Elisha, and Daniel, and Ezekiel, and Amos, and Isaiah, and Zechariah. Some of these are in dreams. Some of them are in person, in the physical world. Some of the angels that appear look and act human, and some are glorious with fire and wings and the glory of the Lord and trumpets shaking the earth, and there's earthquakes when they land. And... But nowhere in the Bible are they chubby babies with short little wings. Nowhere. They're not up there floating on clouds playing miniature harps, just so you know. All right? You don't have to believe any particular claim uh, of somebody who thinks they've interacted with an angel or seen one, but we are believers, not doubters. Hello? You know, the saying is, haters going to hate, well, believers going to believe, and skeptics going to skept. I'm not saying you have to believe me or anyone else that claims it, but it is normal in Scripture. And it should be normal in the church. Not in every individual Christian life, but in the church. Together, it should be normal. So, let's talk about angels. What do they do and what is our relationship with them? Is specifically the two questions I want to answer this morning. What do angels do and what is our relationship with them supposed to be? So, what do angels do? Well, Hebrews 1.14 will be on the screen. They are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. That's the definition of what an angel is. Hebrews 1.14. They are all ministering spirits. Their minister means serve. They are servant spirits who serve God, and apparently they serve either God to us or even sometimes it says they serve for us. I'm not exactly certain exactly all the ways we could take that word. They are servants. And the word angel is angelos, and it, it means messenger. So they are messengers on God's behalf. In Revelation, we see them worshiping God primarily. Millions of millions. Revelation 5 says, I, told, I talked to you about that before, millions of millions is trillions. Trillions. That's a thousand angels per person on the planet. It's a thousand times the population of the earth. There's a lot of worship going on. In Revelation, they are enacting the judgments of God. They are blowing trumpets, pouring out the bowls of wrath, opening the seals, uh, loosing the judgment of God on the earth. And they are singing and shouting for God to bring the kingdom of heaven and establish Jesus 
and to destroy the wicked. They are saving the godly and they are killing the wicked. There's a lot of killing that happens at the hands of angels uh, in Revelation and all through the Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, in Isaiah 37, one angel kills 185,000 men in one night. That's a pretty fierce warrior. I tell you what, the guy I saw could have done that. Absolutely. It was amazing. He was so beautiful in his confidence. No arrogance at all. No self-consciousness or self-awareness even. It was unearthly how perfectly beautiful and I don't mean he was physically beautiful but I just it was beautiful it was amazing other than worship the the identity of angels is that they are soldiers they are warriors because the most used name for them in scripture is the hosts of heaven which means armies the most used name for God in the old testament 357 times he is the lord of hosts he is the lord of armies and he's got a big army like trillions <laughs> He's got a big army. They are warriors. They are strong. There is nothing chubby babyish about them at all in Scripture. Jesus says that they are the harvesters in God's field. In numerous times, Jesus says that they're the ones working the fields. They're the ones pulling the tares out of the wheat. They're the ones harvesting the wheat into the bins. They're the ones separating the sheep and the goats. Uh, in numerous parables, Jesus refers to the angels as the workers on God's farm. They're, the one, they're his servants who are working his field and uh, tending the sheep and the goats. Three times in Revelation, there is an angel who carries a bowl of incense up to the throne of God. And Revelation says specifically it is the prayers of the saints. So there is, a, there is an idea, and it's somewhat scriptural, that angels deliver our prayers for us. Um, I don't think there's a stenographer angel right here writing down my prayer, and God can't hear it, but he delivers it up there. I, I don't see it like that because that's sort of a physical and temporal view of the actions in the physical or spiritual realm. But I do believe that the word angel means messenger. They carry messengers from God to us, and I think they also carry messages from us to God because in Revelation it says they are delivering incense to God, and it says specifically the incense is the prayers of the saints. So some of you might be bothered by the fact that there's an angel that has to deliver your prayer to God, but you know, and I get that there is no intercessor between God and man except the man, Jesus Christ. I get that. But the angels are so perfectly submitted and obedient, there is no division between them and Jesus. And the word angel means a representative messenger. So just like a king sends a messenger on business and you know he's got the seal ring of the king or he can knock on the door and open in the name of the king. I'm on king's business. It is the same thing as if Jesus is doing it. So... So again, I, I don't think that God doesn't hear our prayers personally, but uh, the angels have a role somehow as an intermediary or a representative messenger. I, I'm not exactly sure, certain how to picture that. But in the Old Testament, there are stories where it uses the term angel of the Lord and the Lord interchangeably in the same story. So is it an angel or is it the Lord? Yes. Because the angels are on the Lord's business, they are him, representatively. 
uh, there is a sense in which they, they carry our prayers. John 5, 4, there is an angel that stirs the pool and Jesus comes on the lame man who's waiting there. When the angel would come and stir the pool, when the water would begin to miraculously spin and bubble up, the first person in the pool got healed. And this, you know, the story, Jesus heals this man because he can't get to the pool before anybody else. But there's, I know people want to claim that there's angels of this and angels of that. And I don't know that there's angels of healing. The Bible doesn't say that. But obviously healing is something angels can do. Um, they can minister healing to, to us on behalf of the Lord. Maybe there's specific healing angels. I don't know. Uh, the Bible doesn't say so, but in uh, Luke 15, 10, it's, Jesus says the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. So they're on our side. They're for us. <laughs> they're for Jesus. But also tells me that they are aware of us and what's going on individually. They're not omnipotent and omniscient. They don't know. They're created beings. They're not, they don't know everything like God does. They aren't everywhere at once because they have to travel. And there's no story of an angel where it doesn't have to travel. God's everywhere at once. Angels are not God-like in that sense. But apparently, as a group, they are aware of what's going on on the earth. And when one sinner repents and comes to Jesus, there's a party in heaven. It's great. They are individually aware of individual people. And in Luke 16, in the story that Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man, there's a, the story is not important for now, but the, the beggar in the story dies, and Jesus says, and the angels took him to Abraham's bosom. That is supremely reassuring to me, that when I die, I am not going to have to figure out how to get to heaven. Maybe I'm the only one who has stupid, crazy, fearful thoughts, but I have wondered, how will I know where to go? In the pagan world and beliefs and all the myths are, you know, you have to fight your way through the afterlife or you end up cursed to wander forever. And, and Jesus says that when our soul departs this body, the angels will be there to escort us to the throne of God. You don't need to worry about figuring it out yourself. You won't have any battles to fight. Uh, there, there you will be met. Um, that's Luke 16, 22. And they carried his soul. They carried him to the bosom of Abraham, which in that story represents the afterlife. I don't even want to touch the theology of all of that. That's a whole sermon in itself. So angels are indiv aware of individual people who get saved. And they are... There are angels apparently with us, so the moment we die, they're there. So, do we have guardian angels? Uh, most of you probably maybe already know, but guardian, the, word, the term guardian angel is not in the Bible. It doesn't exist. That is a man-made term. But the idea is there in Scripture. The idea that we have one or two angels looking over us, taking care of us, flying alongside our car, uh, that kind of stuff. I'm, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But the term guardian angel is not biblical. Uh, it may not be wrong, though, because in Matthew 18, verse 10, and this one will be on the screen, I think. Yep. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
Jesus is talking about children and specifically toddlers. And he says, see to it that you don't despise. And despise in English means hate, but in the Bible, it's much more subtle than that. It is don't blow them off. Don't think they're unimportant. They're angels, so they possess angels, like angels are assigned to them specifically. Um, always see the face of my Father in heaven. Uh, and, the, and the sense of that phrase, Jesus says their angels always see, they always have access. So here's another verse that kind of lends the idea that there are angels carrying our prayers or our messages, or at least reporting to God on our behalf. I'm not exactly sure why God would need a report on our behalf, but there are angels that are, that are ours, whatever that means, and they always have access to God. And Jesus said specifically of, the, of little children, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So at least those who fear God and want to obey him have angels who are assigned to deliver us from trouble. What God defines as trouble, not what we want to think is trouble. We all know that. Psalm 91, 11 and 12 says, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, in their hands that they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So that's a messianic psalm, specifically applies to Jesus, but it applies to us in Christ also. And so there is not any verse or teaching in Scripture that tells us we have guardian angels, but there are verses that say there are angels assigned to us to watch over and guide and guard, I guess. Yeah? You see them there in in those scriptures. Back in Ezekiel 9, we won't go back to the verse on the screen, but the first passage I read you, the six men, God says, let those who have charge of the city come forth. And six angels show up with battle axes and, and the pen. And they look like men, they don't, they're not flaming with wings, although that's what Isaiah sees. And Ezekiel himself saw other angels, we looked at that several weeks ago, that were on fire. And, but these guys look like human beings. It's really interesting to me that God says, let those who have charge of the city come. Apparently there are angels who have been given governing authority, in Jesus' name of course, but who have governing authority over cities. And in Revelation, in the letters to the churches, Jesus doesn't address the letters to the churches. He addresses to the angel of the church of Thyatira, to the angel of the church of Sardis, to the angel of the church of Laodicea. So what are we supposed to do with that? I don't know. In Ezekiel and Revelation, there are angels who have authority over cities and churches. Of course, in Jesus' name, because Jesus is king, but they are his servants, his administrators, governors, and, and we are also. But there, there are angels who have some sort of protective, governing, responsibility type authority. So, what do angels do? Well, they worship God, they fight his battles, 
They serve us whatever he tells them to do. They work in his field, bringing people to salvation. They're bringing the goats away from the sheep and the tares out of the wheat. They sometimes, at least, bring healing. They celebrate with the church when sinners repent. They carry souls to heaven. And they have some sort of governing authority over cities and churches. And I don't say that that's all of the scriptural examples of what angels do, but that's the ones that I found, that I thought of. The Bible says there are different types of angels. There's cherubim, that Psalms says are angels made of wind. And there are seraphim, which the word seraphim means flaming serpents. They're angels made of fire, and fire moves kind of like a snake as it burns. So Isaiah 6 is the source of seraphim. Uh, Revelation mentions John sees these four living creatures, which Ezekiel identifies as cherubim, but apparently they're different than the rest of the cherubim because they have four faces and they're really strange. There's 24 elders, whoever that is. Uh, they're apparently not human, but maybe they are. I don't, I don't know. The revelation is really unclear as to who the 24 elders are. And, but there's these different types of beings is all I want to say right now. There's different types of beings in heaven. Then, of course, there's at least one archangel, and that's Michael. Michael is the only one who's identified as archangel. It's church tradition that there was three, that it's Michael and Gabriel and Lucifer. But that's just church tradition. It's not in Scripture that they were equally the three angels in charge. But we know there's the only angels named in Scripture are Michael and Gabriel. Gabriel seems to be a messenger because he shows up whenever there's a new epoch of history that's being prophesied to Daniel and Mary and Joseph and Zechariah. Michael is the archangel. He's the one in charge of everything. If we interpret Ezekiel, his description in the king of Tyre, if, if we interpret that to be Lucifer, then we can see that Lucifer used to be one of the top angels in heaven, but he rebelled. There's, I'm not prepared to go into that passage and teach on it because we're going to do that in a whole different Sunday. But apparently Satan was an angel and Revelation says that the dragon drew a third of the stars out of the sky with his tail. And the stars represent angels in Revelation 1. Jesus says the stars are angels. If you want more on that, you can go online and listen. I got a whole sermon on the stars are angels. In Scripture, one of the symbols for angels is stars. And Revelation says, with his tail, the dragon drew a third of the stars out of heaven. And the standard historical church interpretation of that is that Jesus said Satan fell from heaven like lightning. He used to live in heaven, but he's been cast down to earth. And that there a third of the angels went with him uh, when there was a rebellion in heaven. And Jude verse 6 says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there are apparently some angels. I'm trying to be really careful and just stick to Scripture here. I realize there's a lot of other ideas that are commonly accepted throughout church history, but I don't want to 
speculate. I'm just trying to stick to Scripture. So Jude 6 says there are fallen angels. If we combine that with Revelation, then it was a third of them, however many there were. A third of them rebelled and were cast like lightning down to earth, Jesus said. So there are holy angels and there are fallen angels. There are angels that did not keep their place, is how Jude says it. So there are different kinds and they apparently have different responsibilities. Angels are, they are beings that have a choice, just like us. That Satan was free to choose to rebel against God and a third of the angels in heaven apparently chose to follow him and try to fight God, which was a dumb idea. But all of us do it a lot. I just want to point out they're they're created beings. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. They have a free will. They travel. They think. They even have ideas of their own because in 2 Kings, there is a lying spirit that appears before God and says, pick me, pick me. I will go to the false prophet and I will fill his mouth full of lies so that you you can deceive Ahab to go into battle and he'll die. So, They are not omniscient, but they are prescient beings. Prescient means they have thoughts. They're not, again, like the Holy Spirit, I drive this home. They're not energy forces. They're not thoughts. They're not clouds or aliens or all these other things that people want to define. They're not human beings, but they are persons. Hello? Hello? with a body and a mind and they can think and speak and act and respond and make plans. But the holy angels, unlike us, have never rebelled. They have not sinned once. Not once. There's no division between them and God. They're perfectly obedient and submissive. They serve him with perfection. So what is our relationship with people have all sorts of crazy ideas? Some people pray to them, some people boss them around and command them to go here and do this and that. And other people think they're like lucky charms or something. Other people are, want to see one in service just to prove that God is there and all these different things. All right, so what is our relationship with them? They were created to serve God. They were created for service. They are ministering spirits um, that God created. We, on the other hand, human beings, we were created for fellowship relationship with God that they do not have. They're created to serve God. We were created to walk with God in the cool of the day. God gave us the earth and the rebellious angels, he cursed them to earth. They have authority in Jesus' name, but they don't have fellowship with God like we were supposed to. They apparently cannot be redeemed. Satan was never given a chance to be forgiven. He was as fast as lightning. He was cast out. No questions, no second chance. Hello? There's never been an offer of redemption. Jesus didn't die for the fallen angels. They can't be redeemed But we sing the song of the redeemed. And in Revelation, when the saints, when human beings, 
sing our song of the redeemed. The angels go quiet. For several reasons. Number one is they cannot join in that song because they haven't been redeemed. They didn't fall, the ones in heaven did not fall and they, didn't, they weren't died for so they don't have the experience of having God love them as sons and daughters. They don't have the experience of having had the cross for me. But also it's in awe of God. Look at what God did for those things. Look at that. Can you believe that? That he is that good and loving. And also, they are in awe of us. I, I mean it. That's the, one of the reasons they're quiet when we're singing is that they are in awe. That look at who God made them. Look at how they turned out. Because at that point, we will be glorified in heaven again. And it, they will be in awe. We know who they were <laughs> and what they did. We saw it all, and look at who they are now. And also, Rick Joyner says, and I say yes to, is that they are, they are there in heaven where they can see in real time and in their, in their environment, they can see the glory of God. And they worship God out of an automatic response. They can't help but fall down and scream, Holy! But they know that we can't see a darn thing. That we are lost. That we are in great pain. That we have, we have to really work to find truth. And hope and peace and joy. And you know, you've heard me say, quote Rick Joyner on this before. But Satan has a boast against God that is accurate and true. And he can say to God now, he can say, when you put them in paradise, they chose me. And we did. God made it perfect, and we chose Satan. But by the end of all this, God will be able to throw it back in Satan's face. When you put them in hell, they chose me. And the angels are going to watch all that. The Bible says they long to look into our salvation. It's not that they can't see that it's true, or they don't know that it's happening. It means, again, that... that um, that sense of looking into is knowing or experiencing like what what is it like to be forgiven to be loved that much to have fellowship with the most high we stand here back separated from his presence by the rainbow and the sea of glass and that we cannot cross and we scream and shout how great he is because we see it but they don't see it yet they love him and he knows they are so wicked and fallen, but he loves them. What is that? What is that kind of relationship? What is that father heart of God? They don't know the father heart of God. They can see it, but they don't experience it. They were created to serve him. We're created for fellowship. But we blew it. Big time we blew it. So for now, we are lower than the angels. Hebrews 2, quoting the Old Testament, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. We are less in glory and in truth and perfection. And they, they are morally perfect. They serve God with perfect submission and obedience. They see God in his glory. They've never been separated from him at all. Um, 
We were created for more than that, but we, we threw it away for the same reason Satan did, thinking we would be like God when we already were. But in the end, we will be exalted above them as sons and daughters of God. We will be adopted family of God in a way they never will be. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 3. This is a passage where Paul is writing about Christians suing each other. And he's saying elsewhere in the passage, he says, it is an utter failure that you sue each other in the world's court system. He said, is there no one in the church who can judge your disputes, who is, has wisdom, but instead you go to court against each other? Come on. All right, that's the context of this passage, but we get this little spiritual gem inside there. Dare any of you, having a matter against each other, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So his point is is saying, if you have a lawsuit or a problem with a fellow Christian, you do not go to court in the world's court system. You don't sue each other. You take it to the church leaders and let them judge. But in there, he says, if we're going to judge the world at the return of Christ, why can you not judge earthly life now? Come on, you've got some wise people somewhere in your midst that can make a decision for you. And then he says it again, do you not understand we're going to judge the angels? I have some imaginings about what that might look like. Again, I want to stick to Scripture. I don't want to go too far in imaginations or traditions or other things. We will be seated next to Jesus. Those of us in Christ we will be seated next to Jesus, judging the world and the fallen angels from his throne, ruling with him. So we will be, at some point, after our, the adoption is complete and the restoration of all things, we get back to what God created in the beginning, we will be the sons and daughters of God again in a way that the angels are not. And we will have his authority, not to be his servants, but to be his children, to inherit the kingdom with Christ. So, for now... We are lower than them. We are subject to their power and authority. And any time in the scripture when a holy angel shows up, we better say, yes, sir, or we'll lose our head like Balaam almost did. But in the end, they were created for service and we are created for relationship. And we will be exalted above them. Two times in Revelation, John falls down to worship the angel. He's so moved and the angel himself is so glorious that he falls down at the feet of the angel and begins to worship him. And the angel very, very strictly says, do not do that. Never, ever do that. They're not going to steal worship from Jesus because they saw what happened to Lucifer. You read Ezekiel, you'll see what he did. Don't you dare worship me. I am not getting in the way between you and Jesus because I saw what happened last time. So there are those that pray to angels or Maybe they're not bowing down and worshiping them, but they're so infatuated with them and so interested that it is obsession. 
Hello? I know maybe not anybody in this room, but maybe you know some people like that. We do not worship angels. They long to look into our salvation. They serve us on God's behalf, but we are lower than them. We do not have authority over them. You don't pray bossy prayers to the angels. I've heard it done. We are the sons of God and they are not. But for now, they're the ones in perfect subjection to Jesus and we're not. So we take orders. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to care for strangers, for by doing so, some have unknowingly hosted angels. In Scripture, they appear as human beings half the time. And the people who are talking to them at first, like Samson's mother, an angel shows up and says, you're going to get pregnant. She has no idea she's talking to an angel. Abraham, when the angel of the Lord visits him, it says it's a man. Um, Numerous times angels show up as human beings and at first, until they disappear, or in the case of Samson's mother, um, he takes his staff and lights a rock on fire. Uh, until something supernatural happens, they're not aware that they're in the presence of anybody other than another, a normal person. And uh, so this verse says, take care of strangers. Maybe that's the homeless guy on the corner at Walmart or, or a hitchhiker or who knows what. And, and you may never know. I don't know why an angel needs our help. Why, do they, why are they walking down the side of the road? I don't know. I don't know. I, don't have, I know this creates more questions than answers. I don't know, but God says, be quick and eager to help people because some of them are angels and you won't know it. Galatians 1, 6-9 also defines our relationship with angels. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you other than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Islam and Mormonism both claim to follow the teaching of an angel that is post-New Testament, came and gave Muhammad and or Joseph Smith new additional revelation. This verse is as clear as it gets. Even if an angel shows up and tells you anything that is not in the New Testament, you're cursed. Period. You do not listen to him. Because we know, the Bible says, Satan can make himself into an angel of light. He was and still is a very glorious being. And a lot of people have been deceived by a message from a messenger, that's what angel means, saying that he's from God. And this verse makes it very, very plain that if there is any other gospel other than Paul says, what I preached to you, which is what we have in the book. Hello? Hello? then you're cursed. So, there are lots of people who are deceived, millions, billions, I suppose, worldwide, who have been deceived by a false message from an angel that wasn't from God. I don't deny that Muhammad and Joseph Smith saw some things. What I deny is that the being they spoke to was from heaven. It wasn't from God. But let's bring it a little closer to home. There are 
a lot of charismatic Christians who get really obsessed or intense about, I saw an angel, or I saw gold dust, or there was a feather that floated down during our meeting, and they're constantly looking for proof or an experience. I'm not saying that those things don't happen, but the attitude of our heart cannot be that if I saw some orb of light float across the stage, that proves that the Holy Spirit was there. No, the Holy Spirit is here every single time we gather together, even if it's only two people on Monday night prayer. And it's as boring as anything. The Holy Spirit is here. So you may run into an angel. Great! Don't get too arrogant or excited about it. It's just supposed to be normal kingdom life. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't mean there was more anointing available that night. Oh, there was healing angels in the room. Jesus' blood is available for healing to every believer all the time. I would be really excited to see light or glory or angels and, and people have come and told me while you were preaching, I saw a light around you or I saw an angel standing behind you. I get people tell me that, not often, but regularly. And some of it, okay, yeah, great. That's, that's helpful. It's encouraging. But it doesn't mean that when, when half of you sleep through my boring sermon that the Holy Spirit isn't here. They're not good luck charms. Hello? They're here all the time. They're here right now. The room is full of them, apparently a thousand to one. Wouldn't that be awesome to see that? Whether we see them or whether we don't, whether we hear from them or whether we don't. And even if we do hear them, we have to judge it by the scripture. Because if somebody saw something and got a message, does not at all mean that we have to accept it. We judge it by scripture. And then we say yes or amen, or we say, no, I can't receive that. That's our relationship with them, is that they serve us, we honor them, we do not worship them, we don't follow them, they serve us on God's behalf, They're working, we are co-workers in his fields, I better just end it there, we are co-workers in God's field, amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word, thank you for your truth, Lord, we want to be spiritually minded and spiritually eyed and eared people. To see what you are doing, to know what you're up to, Lord, to be mindful and heartful of your kingdom, of your spirit world. Thank you for your word that guides us, Lord, and keeps us on the true and right path. May we never depart from it and following something, some spiritual obsession, chasing down experiences and manifestations. Lord, we want whatever you want. We want whatever you do. We want whatever you have. We say yes and amen. Thank you that you have assigned spirits to keep us from harm, to keep us in your will. Thank you that you love us, that you are attentive to us, that you are a powerful God with a very, very large army. There is no one who can stop your will. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. We bless you. We praise your holy name. Amen.